BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hello, everyone. I'm Denise Sinitka, and you are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. Episode 91 is here, and it is called Mind Your Plate. And my guest today, Nina, a dietitian from Hy-Vee, is going to explain what she means by the concept of mind your plate. But overall, what it means to me is that whatever you're doing with your kids eating, you're doing okay. Could you do better? Do you probably want to do better with the way your kid eats their dinner, snacks, lunch, whatever? Sure, probably. But Nina is here to make you feel a little bit better because there are some great tips that she can share about picky eaters in your house, how to fuel yourself a little bit better for motherhood, but also to take a lot of the shame out of it. So this is a conversation about food, but this is not a Weight Watchers conversation. This is not a conversation about calories or about how many carbs you should be eating. We're not breaking down macronutrients. Instead, we're talking almost food psychology. And that's why I love this conversation so much. First, before we get to Nina, I want to tell you um, a little story. Okay, so I had what was supposed to be the like girls' vacation weekend of a lifetime. We were going to the Hamptons, which I feel like only a certain set of people can say that they summered in the Hamptons. And I wanted to pretend to be one of those people, you know, where you just put on your fancy pants for a whole weekend and, you know, check out the shops and, you know, have a lunch and do such things. And so I joined some girlfriends out in the Hamptons where one of our friends was working for the summer. And we promptly got hit by none other than Hurricane Henri. Okay, it's Henry with an I, which apparently is Henri, which of course it hit the Hamptons. The only weekend that I was going to be there in the whole history of the universe. But no, we spent uh, the entire trip getting ready for, dealing with, and then leaving the aftermath of Henri. The one thing that was funny is that for a brief moment we got to escape, my friend and I got to escape to Southampton for like an hour before the storm was supposed to start, and we decided to check out some of the shops. And while we were there, there was one little restaurant that we decided to sit and have a glass of wine at, um can't even remember the name of it at this exact moment. Anywho, why can't I think of it? Anyway, so we're at this restaurant and the waitress was making us laugh because she kept talking about how they're kept. um, So the, the restaurant had these gorgeous 
Um, and very, very old glass windows out front. And they were like kind of curved. And so she said that when storms come, they usually board up those windows just because they're so old. And so we were having a giggle because there were two men initially working on boarding up these windows. And then there were three. And then there were four. And there was a lot of like men standing around and a lot of hands on hips and a lot of furrowed brows and just more and more men are arriving in a supervisory role to um, watch the boarding up of these windows. And so we were all kind of having a giggle over the fact that, um, you know, when when men need to do things, there are eight of them and they all, you know, talk amongst themselves and they, you know, like supervise and one of them you know consults about the size of the screwdriver that needs to be used or whatever tool and I just feel like if there was two women in charge of boarding up those windows those damn things would have been done in two seconds and glasses of wine would have been had and there would have been no no nonsense um with how many men it takes to uh board up some windows so um that kind of made me laugh uh, so anyway, so while we're watching this take place and the waitress was laughing and she was like, oh, thank God you're here because I just want to snark on these guys the whole time. Um, so while we're sitting there, uh, this woman kind of comes up um, on my seven o'clock and I can tell that she's taking my picture. And I turned to her and I assume she was a local like newspaper photographer. And I turned to her and I said, um, you know, do you think this storm is going to be a thing? And she's like, well, I mean, I don't actually, you know, who knows? You never really know with a hurricane. Um, do you mind that I'm taking your picture? And I'm like, no, like, but who are you? Who are you with? And so she tells me she's with Getty Images and she's basically traveled the world taking incredible photos and I'm sitting there drinking wine and um, she's like, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead, go reach for your glass again. That's a good, that's a good shot. So um, she tells me that these photos will likely end up on, you know, the Getty like image wire and that basically publications all over the world will be able to pick it up. And so that's how I ended up my um, fake bougie butt um, on the Toronto Sun and on the New York Post. Um, and my friends were kind of making fun of me because it was very much me pretending to be rich and unbothered by this hurricane coming. I think the headline was like, East Coast braces for storm. And there's like my dumb self sitting there with um, my glass of wine. Um, and I also ordered this incredible Casio de Pep or whatever, um, that fantastic creamy pasta that it's just wonderful. Um, so it was, that is my rich and unbothered moment, even though I am far from rich and very much bothered almost all of the time. So that's like the one standout moment that I had from the trip to the Hamptons. And um, so what I'm saying is, if you have a summer house and I can recreate this trip to the Hamptons for me and my six girlfriends who were rained out, please um, inquire within. We would really like to hear from you. The next thing that I wanted to tell you was about the conclusion of the Molly Tibbetts case that I've been covering. You have probably heard in previous episodes or other coverage or my Facebook page, um, there was some drama after the conviction of Christian Bahena Rivera for the murder of Iowa college student Molly Tibbetts. And he was trying to get a new trial. His defense was putting up quite a fight. And ultimately, 
that legal fight has ended with his sentencing that took place this week. Um, the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder in Iowa is life in prison without parole, and so that's what was done this week. And um, I've, I've gotten so many emails um, about my coverage of the Molly Tibbetts case, and um, I'm... I'm humbled by it and struck by it because so many people who wrote me just expressed um, thanks that I was sticking to the facts. And unfortunately, we are in a place of journalism right now where it feels like facts are a little more rare than they should be. And I just wanted to share one email that I got regarding my um, coverage that just it meant a lot to me. And um I don't know. I just I like the way she she phrased it. So she wrote, hi, Denise. I don't know if you'll ever see or read this. And it's okay if you never do. But I just wanted to tell you how amazing it is to read your posts. And it's actually quite inspiring. Not only just as someone who watches Channel 8 or reads your posts, not even just as a woman, but as a survivor of stalking and essay, which I'm assuming she means sexual assault myself, how you've shown such dignity and poise and defended Ms. Tibbetts in basically her right to exist. It brings tears to my eyes, the things you have stood up to in your posts. I'm not a keyboard warrior, nor am I brave enough to type the things I would like to, but you are brave, even if you may not see yourself that way. I hope you never feel the pressure to stop. Thanks for all that you do. And so signed the name Liz. Um, thank you, Liz, for writing that. I don't necessarily see myself as brave, but I um, I appreciate... I just appreciate the kind words, you know, to feel like your work is appreciated and that um, that someone out there thinks that that you are doing the right thing for a, a victim of a horrible, horrible crime. And, um, you know, so for all of the terrible crime scene photos that I had to see while covering the trial, it's emails like this that that reminds me that like my part in um, in these situations is to provide some clarity some comfort and, um, you know, some, some dignity to, to, um, the victim. I don't know why I wanted to share that, but it just, it just meant a lot to me. And, um, so thank you. Thank you for any feedback that you send me. It really, it really means a lot to me to, to actually hear, you know, the way that my content is being received. So thank you so much for that. Okay. Let's get to Nina. You guys, Nina is a dietitian at Hy-Vee slash food psychologist. She will probably disagree with me calling her that. Um, she does disagree with it, in fact. Um, but we we start with talking about the concept of being honest about motherhood versus complaining. She tells her birth story, um, which I love hearing a birth story. And I feel like women love to tell their birth stories. And that's why I like to hear them, too. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about something called intuitive eating which is not eating your feelings. It's something a little bit different. We're talking about not the what you choose to eat, but the why you choose it, not for your, just for you, but for your kids. How do we not pass our food issues on to our kids? How do we expose them properly to foods we want them to eat? And I really like a couple of ideas that she brings up. Um, the concept of always having a safe food on the plate for your kids that might make them feel more adventurous. You'll hear why. And this one might be controversial, but I like it. Why you should serve dessert with dinner. Okay. Don't save the cookie as a reward. 
Maybe you just put it right there on the plate. So Nina is going to explain her concepts and her reasonings behind all of those things. And this is a great episode, and I'm so glad that you are here for it. Please share it with a friend. It means everything to me to, to hear that you've shared it with someone and they've enjoyed it, and it keeps this mom community growing. On a Mother Level is a passion project for me, and it means everything that you are here to be a part of it. So let's get on with it. Here's Nina. I'm reading on your Instagram that August is an important month to you. And so here we are on August 31st. How did August 2021 go for you? Oh, it's so much better than 2020. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, I feel like it just flew by. My kiddo turned four. And so I feel like every year is just a new set of excitement, I guess. I mean, obviously every year has its own challenges, but he's just becoming this own, his own person. And so it's really amazing. And August is always when we usually go out to Colorado. It's our Colorado vacation usually every year, which we didn't get last year. We went twice this year and it's just, I don't know. It's where I feel like it's home to me. So I love this month. The month has a lot of meaning for me too, in terms of you know, it was the month I became a mother um, with my son's birth. And it was also um, the month that, so I have had a miscarriage in the past. And ironically enough, the, that is the month that that baby should have been born too. Mm. So August is kind of loaded for me, but this year has been really good. I can't complain. So do you have a lot of thoughts then as you enter August every year, there's, you know, there's the joy and then there's some sadness that comes along with it too. Um, You know, a little bit, I feel like there's a lot of reflection for me, especially with my son and his birth. There's a lot of excitement now because he knows what birthdays are. And so it's a little bit different where that first year it was just kind of all mine, if that makes sense. And so I'm able to kind of, I really come into it, looking at it from that perspective of it's his birthday, but it's also my birthday in a sense. And there's a lot initially for me that was challenging in terms of just, you know, I didn't have the birth that I wanted. I didn't have a lot of what I wanted from my birth experience and my labor experience, but, um, we had a doula and she kept a timeline a birth timeline. And so every year on his birthday, I kind of go through and I read that. And oftentimes I'll go back and I'll read some of my posts on infertility and with the miscarriage and things like that. And it's just a lot of reflection. There's not so much grief for me anymore. I think I'm, I think I'm past, I don't want, I don't know. I don't know if I'm completely past that. It comes up at different times here and there, but definitely something that I think of as I come into August every year. Can we talk a little bit about um, your birth experience and why it wasn't what you wanted it to be? Because I think that's a really relatable topic for people. It is. And I think it's one of those things that just does not get talked about enough. Yeah. Um, Or when it does, it doesn't get talked about in the right circumstances either. Usually it's to a pregnant woman. And that's, you know, I don't think a pregnant woman, you know, wants to hear always a traumatic birth experience. (laughs) (laughs) Or some, 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 some people are different, but I always use that caution. Anytime that I'm talking to someone, I'm like, do you really want to hear my story? Because, you know, it, every story is different and I don't want to also put that on somebody else, but 
you know, for it was labor and, and the whole pregnancy experience really was just obviously completely new to me. And obviously labor and delivery was, I was very thankful that I had a doula just because I I love my husband, but I knew that I wanted somebody else there in the room to help provide support because we didn't know how it would go. And for me, especially towards the end, I started having issues with high blood pressure and it was just kind of unexplained. And so we ended up getting induced, which was, you know, it's a whole process. It was a several day process from going, we went into the hospital on a Monday and I didn't have my son until Wednesday. And so it was that whole start of the process was not part of the plan. My body actually did not respond well to Pitocin. And so there was a lot of issues that went on from that perspective of just my body wanted to push, my body wanted to bear down, which caused complications. So I ended up having to get an epidural, which I didn't want. Um, Obviously, there's nothing wrong with it. It was really great for me, too, but it wasn't part of my initial birth plan. And, but for me, it actually ended up being the best thing. I ended up with an epidural and then that entire night, it allowed my body to labor and not, you know, experience the pain and everything that I was, was experiencing. And so it ended up being the case, but then, you know, I pushed for four hours and I just, did you, you. (laughs) there's like a special club. I feel like you should join (laughs) when, I mean, I, it didn't feel like four hours in, in that time frame. No. But, but when you think about what you can do in four hours now and how you spent those four hours, I just, yeah. And so there was a lot with that, that just was exhausted. I, it was actually where I started really, um, with my career base at, at least started to realize that there needs to be a focus on women. We tend to or at least the person who is giving birth, because what tends to happen is that we just, and once that baby is out, all the attention goes there. And I remember vividly being terrified to hold my son when he came out because I hadn't had any sort of like food or sustenance since Monday night. All I was consisting on was, you know, Gatorade and Sprite and, you know, all of those, you know, higher sugar beverages that were allowed. And I remember after pushing and having him out, feeling like I was going to pass out because I knew my blood sugar was so low. And I remember vividly like saying, I need a sandwich. I need something to eat as my son was laid on my chest and holding him thinking I was terrified that I was going to drop him, that I was going to pass out. And I was going to drop him because nobody, it seemed like nobody around in the room was listening to me. Mm -hmm. I remember my midwife trying to show me my placenta. And I was like, that would have been really cool. (laughs) I I remember it, but I'm like, man, that would have been really cool. Had I been like conscious enough to really care at the moment. And I just remember feeling like I was screaming, like I need something to eat. Mm -hmm. And finally, that's when I got the attention of everybody in the room. But I just, that was kind of a wake up moment for me of like, gosh, we have so much surrounding the culture of labor and delivery and birth that really centers on the baby, which is important, but not enough that focuses on the birthing person either. The most tender moment of that whole experience was when 
what the one nurse took me into the bathroom afterwards, you know how they take you and they get you all cleaned up and they just make you feel like you're a warrior almost. And like that moment really stuck with me, that person, whoever she is, one nurse, like was an angel. All the nurses were great, but I just remember that one, but wishing there were more moments like that. For me, I feel like birth was something that happened to me or labor was something that happened to me. It wasn't something that I was really actively a part of, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like you did take that extra step for yourself of having that doula, that extra person Mm -hmm. who was there for you and for you only. And so I'm sure that helped a little, but, but it still felt like, like it wasn't as inclusive for you as you wanted it to be. Yeah. And honestly, you know, my doula was fantastic, but she had another mom who was a floor upper or, you know, was just on the floor who is, yeah. So she was laboring too. So the minute that my son was born, she was like, okay, I got to go. Cause this mom is delivering to, and you know, that, that rarely happens. Right. And I, I, I got it. I was like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, within the mix of things, but yeah, that, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, and I feel like stuff like that, stuff like what you went through, stuff like what I went through, that's the reason that we, you know, automatically blab our story to like the pregnant woman in the grocery store, because I mean, how many times have you gotten to tell your birth story? Maybe four or five times before you feel like, man, people don't really want to hear this from me. Like, this is not a story people want to hear. And so like, you know, normally like you could tell a story of a car accident you were in. 25 times and people would be interested in it, but somehow you're like telling your birth story and people are like, God, lady, like get out of here with your weirdo story. It's so true. We do feel a little bit stifled about telling that story. And I would tell the story of the day my first son was born anytime anybody wanted to hear it, you know, and people as a word don't want to hear it. (laughs) That's so true. And I would go way more into detail too. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's why I think that there's just this like stigma that really surrounds people sharing birth stories because we're just supposed to suck it up and do it. Right. It's just a part of who we are. We signed up for it, I guess. It's just, you know, the expectation and that's not, that's not true at all. There are just so many instances where things sometimes happen to us instead of it being something that we were actively engaging in and a part of. And, and yeah, yeah. And I also have a hard time squaring that with the idea that millions of women have given birth and will give birth after me. And I'm not that special and I'm not that important. You know, sometimes it feels a little narcissistic to be like, well, my birth should have been it's like, get over it, lady. Like women do this in much harder conditions than me at, you know, my lovely accommodations at Genesis East. Yes, that's so true. And I mean, even with me being like, well, I had a doula there, you know, I had all these things that I was able to accommodate. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I think anybody's time somebody asks me, I I do kind of, you know, just say, do you really want to know? Like, because I don't know, sometimes I feel like people just ask, but sometimes people are really genuinely interested. And is my story really special? I don't know. (laughs) It's special to me, I guess, because yeah, and it should be. I remember this, it was long before I even was pregnant or even really thinking about it. I was on a work trip and I was hanging out with a work colleague who was from another state and she was, we must've been talking about like, do I want to have kids or something along those Mm -hmm. lines? She has two daughters. And I remember her saying, 
And like I said, at that time, I was, I was not even close to even thinking about starting a family, but she said, everyone's going to say negative stuff to you about pregnancy. She's like, but you just really have to tune it out. She's like, cause my pregnancies were great. And like, just try to tune out some of the noise. And I, I always kept that close to me. And I try to remember her words when I talk to other pregnant people where, where it's just like lead with the positive first. And yeah, if someone asks you for, for further information, yeah, I've got plenty of those stories too, but Mm -hmm. I just remember how impactful it was for this woman who I barely knew to tell me like, enjoy it, love it, live it, you know, and, and try to tune some of it out. So I, I just thought that was cool for someone I barely knew to, to kind of, she set the tone for my pregnancies without even like realizing it, you know? Yeah. That's so great. And I feel like that should be more of a response that we give instead of automatically going, Oh, my pregnancy was terrible. (laughs) Or I had this or I had that, or going into a horrible birth story or all of these things, instead of just talking about, because it is an amazing experience. I mean, if you think about that, growing a human being or several, I mean, it's just, and the things that you get to experience with that. And there are so many people out there that don't get to experience that, that want that it is an amazing experience. And we should be talking about the positives. And then on the flip side too, I think we also need to have the information. And, you know, I feel like there were some things that I was prepared for, and there were some things that I was not prepared for, and I was not provided the education with. And that's, I think, where we have this gap in care for, you know, all of our birthing population is that we're missing some of those. We're missing some, some things there. Yeah. And I think that's where talking about our experiences helps expose those gaps. You know, it's not all complaining and whining. It's about, it's about the fact that I didn't hear the words pelvic floor until like two weeks ago. Yes. (laughs) I, you know, I, I, oh my gosh, Denise, I can vividly remember the first time I went to go work out and I, nobody talked to me about pelvic floor. Nobody talked to me about what fitness after a baby should look like and how it should be introduced. I mean, there was never any conversations about this. I remember I chose a hit workout and I can't remember All how far I was. I thought, <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I thought my body was never going to go back to normal. I couldn't. I could not believe. And then I remember crying and then, and I'm in a completely different place now with so much more education, but I do, I, I totally agree. Like, why are we not talking about pelvic floor with women just in general, but then why aren't we talking about it through pregnancy through postpartum? I mean, yes, <laughs> that's just like one of the very few things I feel like that just get left out of the conversation until we're talking about the problems that we have that has been normalized as being a part of a mom. Yeah. And I firmly believe that's what our generation of moms is doing. I believe that we are actually raising awareness about these things that will make it easier for our son's daughters to be mothers someday. I, I honestly, I think my podcast is doing it because we're talking about it. I believe that, um, people who specialize in all these important areas like you and nutrition, we're all making it better for the next generation of moms. And I'm proud of us for doing that. Yes. So let's talk about nutrition. So tell me how you got into the field. Tell me a little bit about um, what drew you to it. Uh, To nutrition in general. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I actually started in journalism. 
So that was my original major. Interesting. Was, yeah. So I, I went to, I started off at Blackhawk College, just kind of didn't quite know what I want to do, but I was broadcast journalism was something that was super interesting to me. And what I found was as I was going through classes and writing assignments and such that I was really drawn to health and wellness topics. So I started doing some research on if there was another career or something that I could kind of pull into. And that's kind of where I fell into the career of a dietitian. It just kind of seemed like the right fit. So I switched majors and luckily, like I said, I hadn't committed to an, um, a college at the time. And so I switched majors and I ended up going to Western Illinois University. Awesome. Yeah. So fellow, uh, alumni there. In yeah. the home. And so I went there and, um, graduated went. I did my internship. So as a dietitian, you do have to do an accredited internship. You have to go to an accredited college where it's, you know, through the academy. And then you also have to go to an accredited internship, which is after the college courses. So I actually did my internship in Colorado at a small health or not a small health department. It was a small internship, but at a health department out there. And after that, I ended up getting a job working in WIC. And so with the women, infants and children program, that was kind of a big spot, like where I was kind of drawn to initially was working with, working with women, working with the kids and the internship that I ended up at had a very long, about a nine week rotation specifically in WIC, which is one of the reasons that I was drawn out there. And I ended up working at the clinic that I interned at for a couple of years. And I just, I really loved it. I really loved the job. I loved the population, but there was just something about Hy-Vee that, that drew me to it. And at the time, you know, just everything that kind of surrounded the dietitian program and what they were doing. And so we ended up moving back when I was able to secure a position there. And so now it's just, I've been with Hy-Vee for nine years and it's just really evolved, but it's kind of funny how I started in WIC. And then, you know, through all my experiences through infertility and, and pregnancy and postpartum, I've just kind of come back around again to that population in a, in a different light, but I love, I love nutrition. I love the science of it. I love being able to help people just make small, simple changes in their lives. We often think that it has to be something that's incredibly big or in depth when it can literally just be a few small things that we add into. I also like focusing on adding to instead of subtracting. It's just a better mentality when I think, I think coming when it comes to health and wellness in general, it sounds so, more productive. Yeah. yeah. Stay away, stay away from do not eat, do not, do not forbidden fruit. You know, that sort of a mentality just seems like you're setting yourself up for failure. Every diet out there, right. Pretty much restriction. And we know we have so much research where that shows that diets don't work, that restriction doesn't lend the results that people are looking for. And so oftentimes, even just with a simple conversation with a client, I can identify a couple of areas that are super simple to make an easy switch for. And it, it's, lends to the longevity too, of keeping those, you know, keeping them on track with those health and wellness goals because they're going to feel better. But also because like you said, it's easier, it's simpler. That's, that's ultimately where my focus has kind of always been and why I've kind of stayed within that realm for sure. 
Yeah. So you are cer- certified in something called intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And that sounds a little like eating your feelings, but I'm guessing that's not what it is. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. I also do a lot of intuitive emotional eating. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> everybody does. <laughs> everybody does. Everybody does. Um, yeah. So I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. And okay. so intuitive eating is basically what we are born with. I mean, if you think about, you know, our kids, a baby is we intuitively know when, when we're hungry and we intuitively know when to stop. So those hunger and fullness cues are something that are incredibly, we're incredibly honed into. And then as we get older, our culture, our family rules, our societal rules tend to kind of change that. And they change also to the perspective of what a healthy body is as well. Uh, and so I was drawn to intuitive eating several years ago because I was really just tired of diet culture and weight loss as being something that was the solution for every health problem. And so I really got interested in the health at every size initiatives and and the intuitive eating, of course, too. And with intuitive eating, so there's 10 principles to it and the whole Uh, program essentially was created by two registered dietitians. And it basically just discusses the different areas that affect how we eat intuitively, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's recognizing our hunger and our fullness cues, knowing when to, when our body is telling us to stop versus just, you know, being done with your plate or your plate being empty, dealing with emotional eating. So, you know, emotional eating is so complex. I've had so many different clients that eat emotionally for so many different reasons that aren't even necessarily directly connected to food. And then there's obviously, you know, having a healthier relationship with food. That's really the whole guide or the whole point of getting back to intuitive eating is you're developing a healthier relationship with food. You're not eating food or restricting food, you know, to get to a certain body type. You're not restricting or engaging in physical activity that is going to be damaging to your body type as well. So there's a lot that kind of comes, comes with that. There's looking at nutrition gently. Nutrition is actually the last principle in intuitive eating because a person really needs to be at a point where they understand that diets don't work. They've rejected that mentality. They are focusing on their own attunement and awareness around food, how their body responds to that, how they feel. And then from there also to having a healthy relationship with movement, physical activity, oftentimes people that I work with from an intuitive eating standpoint, have been on diets most of their lives. Lots of rules, lots of regulations, lots of restriction. It's interesting that you bring up the concept of babies, you know, knowing when they're hungry and knowing when they're Mm -hmm. full, because that's like the bare bones of listening to your body and responding to it appropriately. And you're right. Then we slowly grow up and we, you know, social and family structures influence the way that we eat. Um, but as an adult, I'm thinking about all the times that my body clearly is thirsty for water and I get in an iced coffee instead. So is that the concept of intuitive eating of, I'm just thinking of all the times that I know what it is that I need and Mm -hmm. you get the convenient thing or you do the, I don't know, you, you do the convenient thing or the, the emotionally satisfying thing first. 
Yeah. So you have elements there. The biggest thing that I work with, with clients with intuitive eating is the attunement. So we talk a lot about attunement, which is literally just, this is what my body needs. And this is how I'm responding. So let's take that example, right? So you're like, my body is thirsty, but I want an iced coffee right now. That's what I'm going to give it. And so there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but for some people there might come feelings later of shame or guilt, because instead of drinking water, I had this coffee that might've been loaded with sugar and that's going to make me gain weight. Or, you know, I feel really bad that I didn't honor my body's natural cues. And instead I gave it something different or for other people that might. And so it's not necessarily focusing on that action as being right or wrong. What I do with my clients is we work on, okay, you recognize that this was something that your body needed. This is how you responded. There's nothing wrong with that at all. What you know now is that maybe it worked well for you in that situation. Maybe it didn't, you know? And so that's, that's more or less the case of, we're really trying to work on with clients as just being more in tuned to why you're making choices. I always tell people it's not the what that we consume where we tend to find problems with relationships with food is and connections to emotional eating is more with the why, why we're choosing things. And there's nothing wrong with why you choose something. So let's say you've had a really bad day and you chose to eat a whole box of cookies or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that choice. Diet culture will tell you something different. That's why, you know, people have problems with that. There's nothing wrong with that choice. It's reframing it and going, huh, okay, this was my response to that situation. Why did I react that way? How did it make my body feel? Because I don't really feel the best right now. And it didn't really solve the main issue, which was, I don't know, I had a really bad day at work or, you know, whatever it was that maybe preempted that instance of trying to get self-gratification that is going to make me feel better. Because for many people, we utilize food in a way that creates emotions in us, right? Food is part of celebrations. It's, it's shown as love from family members, parents, those kinds of things, but also food is used as a weapon essentially in, in, you know, when, when you think about diet culture and such, but then also food is a coping mechanism. It's a comfort and there's nothing. I, I say that so many times, there's nothing wrong with that. It all comes back to the attunement of understanding why you're choosing things when you're choosing them and working on not being so hard on yourself because you've made those choices. This is like major food psychology. (laughs) And I have, I will say, I do not have any sort of like, sometimes I feel like I need a psychology degree (laughs) because often in my intuitive eating consults, it's definitely more of, you know, just kind of like a conversation and, you know, consultation. I, I have a couple of clients right now. We haven't even talked about food. We haven't even gotten to gentle nutrition because there's so many other things that come that we have to work out about that. Why before we can really get to the what of it. And so, but yeah, there is a lot. We don't tend to realize how much our mental health affects our overall health and wellness and nutrition. Something I've started asking, especially since this last year and since the pandemic started was I will be very upfront with my clients, especially if I think that They need it a little bit more and asking, are you working with a mental health professional? How are you right now? Mental, you know, what is your mental health like right now? Tell me about that. Because if a person is not balanced 
mentally, if their mental health is in a bad state, they have no, there's no way that they can handle working with me. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And when we talk about nutrition and mental health, we talk about motherhood and mental health. There's a, there's a direct tie here. hundred percent. I mean, you think about that mother, what is it? The motherhood, the mental overload yeah, of motherhood. Yeah. You know what I'm uh-huh. talking about? Oh yeah. Which is, <laughs> it's everything that swims up here in your head that you can't see, but you know, that is there. And so there have been some of my I don't want to say my favorite, but they are some of my favorite clients are working not only just with pregnant women and, you know, and such, but with moms, moms who are essentially running on fumes, right? They are doing so much else to kind of work out all of those different things that they're supposed to do that are the checklists in our head that affect our mental health, that we are forgetting to feed and fuel ourselves. And we're just, we're eating the scraps from this lunch and the scraps from this snack and just trying to get by to get to the next, next task. And so when I get that opportunity to really talk to a mom one-on-one and just say, Hey, I get it. I understand your stress. I understand you're working 40 hours and you have however X amount of kids to take care of. And you have all these responsibilities, but let's talk about how we can get you nourished because there's a reason you're tired. There's a reason you're exhausted all the time. There's a reason maybe you're not feeling as well and I can help. Yeah. I heard on a podcast the other day, something about how, when you're like running around and shoving food in your mouth, you know, because you're like, you know, you're doing other things and whatever you actually interrupt your digestion because your body hasn't like, like mentally processed, like we're turning on our digestion. Now we are processing food now. And so I heard that on a podcast And then later that day, I did that exact thing. I was like shoving food at myself while I was getting other things. And then I realized I had a stomach ache and I was like, now Mm -hmm. either this is a coincidence or this is really, there's some truth to this, of this fact that I never told my body, this is what we're doing now. You know, and I realize our body like is automatic in so many respects, but, but it felt like an interesting coincidence that I just like heard this piece of education and then had a stomach ache. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, I don't know a hundred percent. Not trying to give you a, like a digestion quiz, but, but, but but just in, in terms of eating something and not feeling well because we're running around in busyness. Well, and if you think about it too, I mean, this is a conversation I have a lot of times with clients in general, and especially with my intuitive eating clients, but it's, you know, a lot of us don't even know when we're hungry. And so are we just consuming that because it's right in front of us? Is it something that we're consuming because we know we have to run to a meeting, so we don't want to be starving? I mean, there's lots of different reasons why, but for a lot of times when we are engaging in other activities while we are eating, we are turning off that attunement that puts us into our fullness cues typically. Yeah. So that's usually where we we see issues with, you know, digestion, stomach aches, not feeling good, feeling overly stuffed is because we're not, like you said, taking the time to sit down and focus on food, focus on eating. Yeah. We're often just, and oftentimes in those instances, we don't even taste what we're, you know, we're not even enjoying the experience of it. And there, that's going to happen too. Like I always preface with my clients, like there are going to be times where you're shoving a granola bar in your mouth because you need, you need to, right. But if you're finding that's especially a regular occurrence where you're doing that and you notice that you are having issues with digestion, it could be a matter of that 
you're, you're not sitting down and you're not paying attention to when you should be stopping or if you really were even hungry in the first place. Yeah, that's a good point too. There could have been other factors, but it, it, it did make me stop and think like, you don't feel well after having done that. Um, yeah. and then I think we all wonder about how we're going to pass our food issues along to our kids you know, especially if you have toddlers and, um, I'll give you an example from my own house. Um, so I grew up a very, very picky eater. Um, and I, I feel like as an adult who eats well and eats a wide variety of foods that I would have never eaten as a kid, number one, I know like your, your palate expands, you know, Mm -hmm. and you kind of mature in that way. But I also think, (laughs) Bottom line is like my mom was a crummy cook and the food legitimately didn't taste good. You know what I mean? Because it just like wasn't prepared right. So I'm like, all right, okay, now I know how to prepare food and I've got, you know, these two kids in front of me. Like, so how do I, how do I help them explore foods in a better way and not turn them into the picky eater that I was as a kid? And picky eating is obviously like a huge umbrella topic that has a lot of factors in it. But, but just the notion of how do we not pass our food stuff onto our kids? Oh, yeah, that's such a really great question because there's, I think the biggest thing is being realistic too, you know, for oftentimes parents will expect their kids to eat something that they're not eating. That's a really common thing that I'll see sometimes is like, well, they won't eat broccoli or they won't eat asparagus. And I'm like, well, are you eating it? Well, well, no, but, and it's like, well, you know, you have to make sure that you are, you know, being a model in that aspect and not setting your expectations super high either. If that's not something you're going to eat, then your kid's probably not going to eat it either. I think too, it all comes down. We, we focus. I wish like, if there was one thing that I could tell every parent really, it's that Yes, nutrition is important for our kids, right? But the hyper focus that we put on what our kids put into their mouth and how much is probably like half of our brain that we, you know, we put forward with it every meal. And I get it, right? Because we want to make sure our kid grows. We want to make sure our kid is properly nourished. We want to make sure all of those things happen. But at the end of the day, if we come back to, again, that attunement factor of our kids are actually the best regulators. They know when they're hungry. They know when to stop eating. It may not seem like enough. When I work with parents who are struggling with picky eaters, I really love coming back to Ellen Satter. She has this amazing, she has a lot of really great references and resources on her own website, but she talks about the division of responsibility, which is there is a responsibility for the child at mealtimes. And then there's the responsibility of the adult. And I have had to tell myself this over and over and over again, too, because my kid is a picky eater. I'm a dietitian and my kid is a picky eater and it's frustrating and I get it. I get it. But at the end of the day, every time I serve him a meal, it's, I am in charge of when he eats and I am in charge of what he eats, you know, the what and the when and the place too, right? We want to make sure a kid is properly at the table, that kind of a thing as much as possible. But my child is in charge of if and how much. And that's a really hard thing to get through parents' minds is that my choose can, my kid can choose not to eat. That's always a choice. And my child can also choose how much their body needs at that time. At times it may be very little at times. It might be a whole lot, you know, especially if they're going through a growth spurt. The other thing too, is 
kids take so many different exposures. You know, there's, it takes up to about 10 to 12 times for a child to be exposed to a food before they may even consider trying it. So on oftentimes we give up after four tries, right? We're like, gosh, you're just not, you're not interested in these strawberries. I'm just going to quit offering them and quit offering them. And I'm guilty of it too. I forget about it. I stick with the things I know my kid's going to eat, even though I should be providing this variety multiple times consistently, because ultimately the research says it's going to take them a lot of exposures before they really start to engage and get interested and, and try those things too. And any opportunity, I think it's a little difficult now, but any opportunity to get kids in the kitchen, I mean, we have some virtual opportunities available at a high V and we've done them in person too, which I hope we eventually get back to, but anytime that you can get the kids cooking with you, my kid will, you know, happily grab pieces of kale while he's sitting there cutting them up with me as we make dinner together. I mean, he's more engaged in trying while we're actively, you know, cooking together versus just sitting down at the dinner table and this thing just showed up on his plate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. We forget that kids are incredibly smart and they're so intrigued in, in foods too, if we really kind of create this positive environment around it so that, you know, let's go to the grocery store. What do you want to pick out? What do you want to try? That's new, um, involving all five senses. That's another thing too, that we typically don't do very often, but we have to remember like these foods are new to our kids, right? We we've known about bell peppers (laughs) for so many years. We've tried them to cook so many different ways, but they're very new to some of our kids. So what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? If we break it in half, what's the sound that happens? And then always, always last. Do you want to try it? Do you want to try it this way? Now let's cook it in a recipe. Does it taste different, right? Yeah. Uh, Do you want to dip it in something? We can find something to dip it in. You know, creating this positive environment around food instead of going, you need to finish this in order to get this, right? That is always, always, always going to create a negative relationship with food. I mean, I, I grew up with having to finish my milk at dinner. And for years I couldn't drink milk and I love it now. And that's not to say, I'm not saying anything, you know, bad about my parents in that respect. I think they were doing everything that they thought was correct and trying to make sure I had strong bones and, you know, got my calcium and all of that. But anytime that we put such high expectations on our children, that creates this more negative environment around food. And as much as possible, when we're eating together, we want to keep it as positive as possible. And so I tell people, mind your plate, yeah. <laughs> mind your, mind your plate because, and as long as everybody at the dinner table is minding their own plate, then you create this positive environment around eating. And that is going to continue to hopefully foster your child to eventually, you know, maybe try something that they hadn't ever tried or fell off their, you know, their food list. And now they're trying again it's a process and it's, it's very stressful. I know, but yeah, if you can kind of keep those little things in mind yeah. constantly, like I said, I'm reminding myself every single night. The other thing too, with picky eating is anytime that you introduce something that's new, or you think that it's going to be new to them, or even just in general at meals, always having something that's like a safe food for them. So, um, if I'm introducing something new to my kiddo, or I think it's something new, I'll incorporate it in some sort of a way, like we'll cook with it. So he can kind of get his 
its hands on it, exposed to it, will smell it, will do all the five senses. Or if it's something that I've just cooked and I put on his plate, I make sure that there's another food on his plate that is a safe food that he knows that he can go to. And then it's not just feeling like I'm forcing him into this one area to try it. And like I said, he may not try it, but it, it creates this safer environment essentially around yeah. food, if that makes sense. Oh, you've brought so many thoughts to my head. Number one. Um, so a long time ago, I read that book about, you know, why French kids are like better than American kids. And, how, you know, I, I'm an American woman and I raised my kid in France and now my kids like cultured and better. Do you know what book oh, I'm talking about? It's no, called, like, I don't. It's called like bringing up baby. And it was all like, you know, I'm an American and I went to France and my kid is like better behaved and eats better and more cultured and la la. And here's how you can raise a French kid too. Anyway, interesting book. But one of the things in there was like, talked about the notion of exposure. So if your kid doesn't like the vegetable cooked this way, you need to cook it three different ways because, you know, I like my broccoli steamed and with a little Parmesan cheese on it, but I don't particularly like it. Let's say, I don't know, bad example, but like you yourself, you yourself don't Mm -hmm. like green beans in every single form that they are served in. So it stands to reason that your kids might not care for it in this or this version. So that kind of stuck out at to me at me. Secondly, and this is going to be a little mom shamey and I want to hear what you think about it. But so mm. I, I'm really sorry if this is controversial, but I have a big thing about taking my kids to the grocery store. I love it. I love taking them to the grocery store. Number one, it's like, the one thing that we do every week, you know, mm-hmm. if we spend no other quality time together that week, we spend that hour at the grocery store. Do they yell? Yes. Are they a huge pain? Yes. Would it be faster if I did aisles online? Yes. However, <laughs> I firmly believe that they need to learn about prices. You know, we talk about the tags that we see at the store and, you know, this is on sale, that sort of stuff. And when we walk through the produce, I love that my, my four-year-old says, what are those black ones? Can we get those? What do those Mm -hmm. taste like? And I feel like there's just the, the ease of not going to the grocery store, I think can be harmful in the long run in terms of exposing our kids to this place that's such a learning environment. I'm sorry if that sounds a little mom shamey. I just, I'm a believer that this is a good place for our kids to go. And it bothered me that through most of last year, it was like one person per family, one person per cart. And, you know, I didn't feel good taking my kids to the store at that time. Cause I'm like, Mm -hmm. I just feel like they're missing out on this experience. Rant over. I just believe in it. I I love it. And it's worth it for me to go through that trouble. I just think yeah. it's important for those reasons. We talk about that so much. Um, I talked about it in my kids cooking classes. We talk about it anytime that we're engaging kids because it's just an educational point, just as much as for the kids as it is for the adults, especially. And that, you know, if they're never exposed to that environment, how, how can they, you know, I have encountered kids that have no idea where their food comes from. It just shows up on the plate. And 
again, everybody has, you know, different ways of living and, and such. And so I don't feel like that was mom shaming at all, because for some women, for some people, they like to go by themselves. Other people, they like to be in totally. the aisles. Totally. And I definitely, it was difficult for me too last year. Cause my kid would normally come with me on Saturday mornings and we would go to the grocery store. It was something to get him out of the house first and foremost, but then second to you're right. It allows them to be able to see where all these foods are. And then, you know, oh, I do want to try that. Or what do you want to get this week? That's something new that we can try. Because as I mentioned, I've, I've been in situations where kids have no idea where foods come from. Yeah. Fruits and vegetables. They don't know what they are too. I mean, we've had, this is going to sound terrible, but I mean, we've had checkers at the grocery store who don't know what some other fruits and vegetables are. Yes. I and love being saying, asked that where they're like, what is this? You're like green onions. <laughs> and I would just give them the look and be like, come on guys. You know, <laughs> I understand if you don't know the cilantro versus the parsley, I have to smell those too. Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it is funny. They're like, what is this? Well, and we sometimes forget too, when we come back to exposure, we think of like exposure, just being what's on the plate exposure is being around the food. So if you yeah. grow a garden at home, or if you have the opportunity to be able to visit a garden or a farm or any kind of that kind of experience, that's an exposure. And so then, yeah, maybe you don't feel like taking your kid to the grocery store every week, but maybe once a month, making it a point to bring totally. your kids to the grocery store, if you can, and learning about the foods. I mean, and that's another thing too. I love about my job. I just did a nutrition tour a couple, like uh, two weeks ago, I think with a mom who came in who wanted to eat better and she brought her kids and she brought all three kids. I wasn't expecting it, but you know, it's just a super simple switch. And we focused on the kids and focused on what they like to eat and what are some healthy choices to put in the cart, you know, having them be able to see that, okay, if half my plate should be fruits and vegetables, half of our grocery cart should be filled with produce too. Right. And so, and giving your children to the autonomy to be able to help, you know, plan some of those snacks or meals or add components to it. You know, maybe you're going to try spaghetti squash picking, you know, that's what you found at the grocery store. Now you're going to bring it home. Now you're going to research what recipe sounds good to you to try this. And now we're going to research how do we cook this? How do we cut it? You know, it's all of that is exposure and you may get to the end and your kid may still may not try it, but it doesn't matter because it's all of that experience is part mm -hmm. of that exposure. And I agree with you. I think it's incredibly important that in some way, shape or form, we are exposing our kids to that. It doesn't have to be something that you do regularly. If grocery totally. shopping is something that is your time away, but trying to commit to under your kid, especially as they get older, like you said, understanding prices, seeing, you know, maybe giving them an allotment of money and being able to, you know, stay within the my plate guidelines because they learn about it in school, you know, all of those different things. But keeping in mind, most importantly, that it's not just about the plate that that counts as one type of exposure. And you're yeah. right too. I talked to my kids when I do my kids cooking classes, I always tell them, I said, we do not give up on a fruit or vegetable until you've tried it at least three different ways. Yeah, And so that can be oftentimes it's raw, oftentimes it's cooked, and then it's in some other kind of a variation form. Yeah. And I tell my adults the same thing too, because for instance, Brussels sprouts, most adults have been grown up, have grown up with overly steamed, super bitter, falling apart Brussels Ugh. sprouts. Yeah. Right? I'm like, Oh, you can, you know, you can shave Brussels sprouts and cook that in a saute. You can roast them in the oven with Parmesan cheese. I mean, there's just so many different ways 
to be able to cook foods yeah. and especially fruits and vegetables. And so, like you said, being open-minded and, and trying new things, especially if you grew up in a household where maybe things weren't cooked the best or they were slathered in cheese or right. you know, right. they were steamed so bad because they were just trying to get on the dinner table. Yeah. Well, Brussels sprouts are definitely having a moment. They, I feel like they have been for a while. Yes. Yeah, they're having this moment where now if you put them in heavy cream and a little bacon or you order them from Johnny's, the first time I had Brussels sprouts that I actually liked was made by Chef Mark from Johnny's Italian Steakhouse. And I'm like, holy smokes, Brussels sprouts are good. Are. Um, yeah, like it's interesting. Yeah, how even even as a 37 year old woman, I'm still learning to eat foods. If you just like make them a little different than you've always ever had them. Definitely. And I think when you have kids too, it kind of helps remember that as well. And the more that you get them into it and sometimes too, it comes from, I hate to say this because there's so much in the culture there, but sometimes too, it comes from like TV. You know, my kiddo a couple of weeks ago was watching Daniel Tiger, man. I love Daniel Tiger. I just like (laughs) anytime, like there is something hard. (laughs) We need to like have him learn a lesson. I'm like, where's a Daniel Tiger episode. But (laughs) this one was a Daniel Tiger episode where they made strawberry pancakes. And, um, my kiddo came to me cause I think I was doing something at the time. And he goes, mom, you have to come back and watch that. You can, you rewind it so we can see what the ingredients were. So you can, he said this specifically to me, my four-year-old did. So you can see what the ingredients are because I want to make strawberry pancakes. And I was like, okay. So we rewound the episode so I could see all the ingredients that, you know, Daniel Tiger's dad had for it. We had all the ingredients. Thankfully we went into the kitchen. He went in with me. He baked it. He cooked them with me. And we sat down at the table because my kid loves pancakes and he tried it. And of course he didn't like it, but we had a really good conversation about how strawberries change when they're cooked because he loves raw strawberries. Okay. So if you think about it, you know, strawberries change when they're cooked. And I said, okay, now you know that you don't particularly care for strawberries when they're cooked, but you like them when they're raw and you tried them in a different way. And so there can be so many different ways that our kids are exposed or bring things in, but also remembering too, when our kids are in that moment where they're like, this is something I want to try. This is something that sounds cool. I want to try those dark grapes or whatever it is. We pounce on it because that's the opportunity for an open exposure, which is where they are initiating that exposure. And hopefully they're going to be more open to trying or trying different ways with it. So you might end up being more successful if that makes sense. What's your thought on clear your plate to get dessert you know, using the dessert reward, uh, cause it really works well in our house to kind of have that cookie as the mm-hmm. promise at the end of the meal. What are your thoughts? Oh, that is such a good question. And you're probably not going to like, my <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you it's really hard. Cause I've mm-hmm. done, I've done both things in my house. So I'm not a big proponent of using dessert as a reward in yeah. general. And the reason is because we are taking away the enjoyment factor that surrounds the actual meal. And in a sense too, when we start to say, okay, you need to eat your, all your broccoli in order to have dessert, or you can't leave the dinner table until you've eaten this or this 
this or this, automatically we put a negative spin on whatever it is that food that we're supposed to be consuming instead of it being a more positive experience or even just a neutral experience to the food, the food automatically becomes negative and no matter what, I don't want to have to eat it. I don't want to have to, you know, have to have that in order to get this. The other thing it does too, for desserts is it puts the desserts up on this pedestal too. And so that kind of creates an issue as well of, well, if you think about it, we shouldn't have to be rewarded in order to receive these foods. Now, can we have dessert? With dinner, absolutely. So Ellen Satter, and I believe um, there's a couple of other bloggers that I follow too, they recommend serving dessert with dinner, with your okay. meal. Okay, that's so interesting. That's what I was going to ask you about. I saw a blog post just yesterday that was like, why mm-hmm. I serve dessert with dinner? Because it basically then it's like, this is a food, you're being yep. offered the food and mm-hmm. we make choices about what's on our plate. Like what's the, what's the thought there? Exactly. It create it takes that dessert off the pedestal, right? And okay. it makes it neutral with everything else. And of course, like when it comes to nutrition, things like that, blah, blah, blah. We know that maybe a piece of cake is not going to be as nutritious as the apple slices on their plate, right? However, if you think about us too, especially if a kid knows like this is what's for the dessert, this is what's coming, I'm not going to eat this because I really want this. When we take that food and we put it next to the other ones, they're probably going to take what you'll often find happens. And I have personally experienced this too, because I will tell you, this was the hardest thing for me to start doing with my kids yeah. is just putting the dessert right on the plate. But I have a really good mom friend who did it. She's a dietitian too. And she was just like, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. And what I found would happen is that my kid would go to the dessert first and take some bites. And then he would bounce back to the other things, or he might finish the dessert first too, right? If it's a small cookie might finish that first, but then he goes back and he eats the rest of the meal and he's not so hyper-focused and worried about the dessert. Now, the other thing to remember too, is that you as the adult control the boundaries surrounding those meal times too. So you don't have to offer dessert every night just because your, your child asks for it. We just came back from vacation last week where dessert was like, a regular thing every night. Right. And so last night when we were having, that was last night was our first like real normal meal at home. My kiddo was like, can I have a cookie? Can I have a dessert? Can I have this? Can I have that? And I was like, no, we're not going to have that tonight. Well, why not? You know, putting up the fight and it's not saying that you're not denying them that they can't have that, but it's just like, you know, we're not going to have that tonight. Maybe we'll have it or we'll make sure we'll have it on Wednesday, right? We'll have a dessert on Wednesday or giving them a concrete time so that they know that they're not going to be missing out on it. It's not something that is being used as a reward for them or, you know, a carrot essentially to get them to eat something, but instead they know, okay, this is something that we have in the house. Occasionally when we have it, it's equally the same as anything else that I'm going to have at that meal or snack. And that if I do want it, I can ask the adult and they'll tell me the next time that I can have it instead of saying, you know, restricting it or denying it too. Because when we start restricting those types of foods or we don't offer them, we don't have those experiences that creates a lot of issues in the long term with, you know, emotional eating, binge eating, you know, things like that when it surrounds those types of foods. But at the end of the day, I would definitely say that as much as you can create an equality between those foods and then to kind of help make you feel better. Cause I know that that's why I tell myself what makes me feel better is that I'm not offering that every night. 
Yeah. We're not, he's not having a cookie every night with his dinner, but he will have it a, a piece of chocolate or, you know, something a couple of times a week, because that's what I do. Right. I like to have, you know, something sweet too, just like my kid would. And then making sure that we are serving that at the same time. So that way they realize that there's nothing that makes this food any better than the other and having those honest conversations with them too. Cause kids are smart, you yeah. know, just because it's a chocolate cake and it has sugar in it, it still has energy. It's going to still provide our body with energy. It may not be, you know, the best energy that we would want to have all of the time, but it's still food. It's still going to function in our body. You know, you are so good. <laughs> I have this conversation. This has been so interesting to me. Well, I do want to give you time to talk about um, some of the programs that some of my families might be interested in getting involved in at Hy-Vee. So we've been talking a lot about picky eating with kids. Yeah. And so we have some cool programming with kids. Hopefully, you know, I don't think the in-person things are going to happen until we start getting things under control when you uh, have, yeah. you know, food and stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done an in-person kids class since February of 2020 and I just, I'm missing it, but we do have virtual opportunities. So every month we offer, uh, kids in the kitchen, kids in Hy-Vee kitchen, and then we have our junior chefs classes. So we have two different age groups that are virtual. They're led by a Hy-Vee dietitian, different one every month. And it's nice because the, you know, they can just log on and follow along with the dietitian, be able to see the other people there. We've had some really great responses with that. And it's really great way to kind of get different exposures. We typically work with different themes every month as well, too. So that's a really fun thing that you can get your kids engaged in if you want them to get more exposure, but it doesn't come from you. That's the other thing, too. I would often have parents be like, why will they eat this here with you and not with me? And so it's somebody different talking about, you know, the benefits of foods and such. So I, I can't highly recommend our virtual kids cooking classes enough. They're just a really great option. Starting in October, we're going to be launching again, the prenatal and the fertility nutrition tours. So we spotlighted those and launched them in July, and then we are going to be offering them on a regular basis for clients. So if those are virtual, uh, and so they will have the opportunity to learn about how to improve their fertility from a nutrition standpoint, both sexes. So both, both genders, male and female, and then also the prenatal and postpartum nutrition tour as well. So really focusing on foods that are going to nourish both that birthing parent and the baby, as well as how do we support that postpartum period too. So those are going to be some really great options offered every month, starting in October. And then the other service that I think is just fantastic because the most important thing I find, I found that the, the biggest thing that keeps people in that healthy routine is having a meal plan every week. And it's the number one thing I absolutely hate doing. (laughs) It's the number one thing I get asked by clients to do for them. Okay. And so we have our healthy habits meal plan program that we launched in January of this year. And it's just fantastic. It's, we have available up to three uh, months. So about 12 weeks worth of meal plans. And the benefit of that too, is that you could be, it's whether you're wanting to have, you have specific health and wellness goals. Maybe you want to gain weight. Maybe you just want to eat healthier. All of those things can come together. You'll work one-on-one with a high dietitian, whether it's virtual or we do offer them in person, depending on the location, but we have our base program. 
that is for one person that you can also add on a spouse. So I've had spouses who have gone through the program. You get four weeks. Each installment is four weeks worth of meal plans. You get the complete nutrient breakdown, the macronutrient breakdown. You get a whole slew of recipes Monday, when or Monday through Sunday, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, all is a guide for you. So it's not like a something you have to follow. It's just a here's a plan if you want to follow it or kind of incorporate it into your current plan that you're doing. There is a shopping list that comes with each week too. And the benefit to this program also is that we just um, launched a gluten-free version. We have a dairy-free version. And then in September, we are launching healthy habits for families. Nice. So it's going to be, so it's going to be literally a meal plan for you and your family of the recipes are just going to be, you know, designed to have more servings available, um, lunch and breakfast ideas that are going to be kid friendly, you know, family friendly. It's nothing that's like super weird that you haven't completely, you know what I mean? It's yeah, not like yeah. crazy things that you would eat. It's, it's going to be things that maybe might be new to you, but we are there. We know that they taste delicious. And so we're really excited. Um, this September is family meals month. So we're super excited to be launching the healthy habits for families in September. So you can hop onto that and we can just get, we can take three months worth of meal planning off your plate, which is, I feel like the biggest mental stressor when it comes to eating healthy, especially yeah. when you have a family and you're working. How can people find you if they want to reach out to you? If they want to reach out, so for me specifically, I cover the Quad Cities, Illinois side. So there's me, and then I have a counterpart who covers the Iowa stores on that side, but I also cover a majority of the state of Illinois. So the easiest way to be able to find us is to go to hybe.com and then you can just search. If you click on the dietitian tab, you can just search based on whatever city you live in and, or whatever city you might live close to, because, you know, even if you're not directly close to a hy if there's a hy in your state, we can help you out. And so they can go to hybe.com and select where they, li they live and that will get them connected. That'll get you connected to a hy dietitian that is closest to you. Awesome. And I'm, I'm licensed in all eight of our states. So if anybody wants me specifically, then I can easily just help them too. So thank you so much for your expertise. This has been really, really interesting. The okay. psychology part of it, I think is it, it almost makes you feel better that it's not just you making bad choices. You know, there's like a whole, there's more to it. And maybe we don't have to play the bad choices, good choices game, you know, where Absolutely. it's just black and white. Yes, definitely. I wish we could just eliminate that verbiage from our whole, you know, emphasis around health and what we eat. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. My thanks to Nina and my thanks to you for listening to episode 91 of On a Mother Level. Please find us on Instagram. It is at on a mother level, sharing posts, sharing um, the highlights of this story will include some photos that might help you understand the episode better. You can take a look at those on the page at on a mother level. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.